When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Meritocracy, the idea we should be judged on our skills and talents rather than our status or wealth, has in recent years been under attack. But is it an idea worth saving or is it an idea that perpetuates a myth of a level playing field? That's the theme of this week's debate, and we pit two intellectual heavyweights against each other, Michael Sandel and Adrian Woolridge, to hash out their disagreements. It's a really fascinating conversation, and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link with the Intelligence Square discount on their books in the podcast description. But now let's go to the episode with host Riddle Shah. Hello, welcome everybody to this Intelligence Squared online debate. Meritocracy, do we need more or less of it? There is no time to lose. We're going to get stuck in straight away. A meritocracy, of course, can be defined as a system in which people get success or power on the back of their abilities rather than because of their money or social place. It is at its heart an idea that strivers will succeed, get educated and get ahead. An imperfect ladder, perhaps, that's open to anyone that's willing to make the effort to climb it. But as we're going to hear, it's an idea, a widely accepted idea, that's beginning to face quite a lot of criticism. Who actually benefits from this system? Do some groups get unfairly blamed for their apparent failure to rise? And do others get to use it and to get and keep a grip on power? Some of the ideas we're going to be exploring. And in a few moments, we will have the result of the first vote, which you made just a moment ago. And it's popped up. Here we are. So, Those of you who think we need more meritocracy, well, there are 46% of you. Less, there are 23% of you. And the undecideds are at 31%. So there is lots to play for, completely unscientific, but great fun. We've got that picture of where you stand. Let's now open the debate and see if that changes 
your mind. Speaking first against meritocracy, we have Michael Sandel. He's one of the world's best known and most influential political professors and philosophers. He's professor of government at Harvard University. His voice is probably familiar to many of us from his BBC Radio 4 series, The Global Philosopher, and that explores the philosophical ideas lying behind the headlines with participants from around the world. And most relevant, of course, for this evening is, of course, his best-selling book, The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good. Michael, over to you. Thank you, Ritula. Adrian, good to be with you. To begin, we need to distinguish two ideas that are often muddled, often confused. The first is the idea of merit in the sense of competence. That's a good thing. The second is meritocracy. That's a problem. If I need surgery, I want a well-qualified surgeon to perform it. If I'm flying in an airplane, I want a well-qualified pilot in the cockpit. Aligning people's skills with the jobs and social roles they perform, that's, that's a good thing on sensible, practical grounds. But that's not meritocracy. Meritocracy is something different. Meritocracy is an ethic of earning and deserving. It's a system of rule based on deservingness. By a system of rule, I mean a way of allocating income and wealth, power, honor, esteem. The meritocratic ideal can be summed up in a simple proposition. If chances are equal, the winners deserve their winnings. Notice, this is a moral claim. It goes well beyond the practical proposition that it's a good thing to have well-qualified surgeons and airline pilots. Now, this is really the heart, the moral argument, is really the heart of the case for meritocracy, if one can be made. And it arises typically in the following way, by asking the question, what was wrong with a feudal aristocracy, a hereditary aristocracy, or a class-based society? And there are two answers to this question. The first is a practical objection. Hereditary aristocracies were inefficient because those who landed on top may well have been incompetent. Meanwhile, there were many gifted, talented people, serfs, peasants, harvesting potatoes. That's the practical objection, the objection of inefficiency. But the second objection to a class-based society or an hereditary aristocracy is the moral objection. It's unfair. Why is it unfair? Because people's life prospects are determined in a hereditary aristocracy by the accident of birth. And when that's the case, it can't really be said that those who land on top deserve their place. They don't deserve their place because it's not their doing. They haven't earned it. They've lucked into it. That's what's wrong with a feudal or hereditary aristocracy. 
meritocracy seems to offer a solution to this problem. If careers are open to talents, and if everyone has an equal chance to develop their talents, then it can be said, so the meritocrat argues, that the winners deserve their winnings. But can it be said that the winners in a meritocracy deserve their winnings? No, not really, for two reasons. First is to do with differences in upbringing, family background. The second is to do with talents. Even if everyone can attend a good school, even if everyone is free to take university entrance exams, still it's the case that those from supportive families are likely to do better. And we see this today in most in American universities, most of the students at selective colleges and universities in the United States are from affluent families, very few from poor backgrounds. If you look at the hundred or so most competitive universities in the United States, more than 70% of those who attend come from the top quarter of the income scale. How many from the bottom quarter? 3%. If you look at the most prestigious places, the Ivy League and Stanford and such places, there are more students from the top 1% than from families in the bottom half of the country combined. Put it another way, if you come from a rich family in the top 1%, your chances of attending an Ivy League school are 77 times greater than if you come from a poor family. And this is despite generous financial aid to those from poor backgrounds. So uh, this is one problem. Now you might say, well, the solution to this problem is simply more meritocracy, improve educational opportunity for low-income students so they can compete on a level playing field. Yes, by all means, we should do that. But, but suppose that we could, suppose that we could somehow counteract, it's unlikely, counteract all of the advantages of family background in meritocratic competition. Then what? Then, hypothetically, whoever did best on objective tests, standardized tests, aptitude tests, like the American SAT, they would win admission. But uh, because those tests would then truly measure talent, IQ, intellectual promise. But that raises a further question. Because remember, we're talking about moral deservingness. Why do the talented, the gifted, as defined even by the best IQ test you could imagine, why did they deserve the winnings that, that would flow to them in a meritocratic, uh, competitive society? Is their having an IQ, a high IQ? Or is their ability to do well on standardized tests? Is that their doing? Or is that their good fortune? There are two contingencies to do with the way talents 
could be rewarded. First, having this or that talent is not one's own doing. Think of a great athlete like Ronaldo or Lionel Messi or Wayne Rooney. Having the talent, great athletic talent, that's a gift. Second, the fact that these great footballers live in a society that loves football, that's not their doing. That too is their good luck. Had Ronaldo lived back in the days of the Renaissance, they didn't care much about football. They were more interested in fresco painting. So these are two elements of moral contingency that undermine the idea that the, the talented, if we could identify them somehow, uh, without any class bias, that the talented deserve all the benefits that flow from the exercise of their talent. So here's the question. It's a question for Adrian. A question for any defender of meritocracy. What is the difference morally between the accident of birth of being born to a well-off family or in the upper class and the accident of birth involved in being born gifted or with the talents society happens to prize. If someone happens to be born with a high IQ, are they any more deserving than someone who happens to be born into the upper class? That's the question for Adrian, and I'm eager to hear what he has to say. Michael Sandel, thank you so much. So much to think about there and to chew over. And Adrian, you've had the gauntlet thrown, thrown down uh, at you. Let me introduce you formally to our debate. Adrian Waldridge, welcome. He's the political editor at The Economist and author of its budget column. His latest book is The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World. He's the author of 10 other books, including Capitalism in America, co-written with Alan Greenspan. And he's also written seven books with John Micklethwaite. Adrian, your turn. Thank you very much for that. Well, let me address Michael's question in the interactive part of this discussion when we're talking to each other. And let me start out, just as Michael did, by laying out my general store. And then we can get into more, more precise questions later on. I want to just make the general case of why we need more meritocracy. First, what is meritocracy and why do we need more of it? Meritocracy is a system for allocating talent to opportunity. Um, in order to do that, we need to uh, judge people on the basis of their individual abilities rather than on the basis of their family background or their connections or their superficial polish. And in order to do that, we also need to provide something like a quality of opportunity, a universal education system, which gives everybody a basic fair chance in life. We need more meritocracy because meritocracy is a good thing. And it's a good thing rather like exercise is a good thing, rather, rather than like ice cream is a good thing. In other words, more of it is better. And it's, we need more meritocracy because I think the problems of meritocracy, of which there are certainly important ones, can usually be solved by more meritocracy rather than less meritocracy. I want to start off by arguing that meritocracy is both a precious thing and an extremely precarious thing. It's a precious thing because it's a relatively late 
invention in human history. Uh, it was the product of the French Revolution, of the American Revolution, of the English Liberal Revolution in the 19th century. And before meritocracy came along, people were judged according to their class backgrounds, according to their status. Jobs were bought and sold on the open market. Everything was about patronage connection and groveling, public groveling. Uh, to people. What meritocracy did was to blast away that world and create a new world of individualism. And um, in doing so, it offered opportunities to people at the bottom of society or lower down society. And one of the most important things to remember about meritocracy is it's a revolution from below. It was first of all made by middle class radicals like Tom Paine. It was then taken up by feminists, by female radicals who said, if you're going to judge men by merit, you should also judge women by merit. It was taken up by the working class, working class people who wanted admission to the temple of knowledge, working class people who just wanted better opportunities. And it was also taken up by ethnic minorities, African-Americans like W.E.B. Du Bois, who's one of the great advocates of merit. It's also a precarious thing because meritocracy is a revolt against human nature. It's something that's deeply unnatural, something that Plato recognised at the very beginning of the discussion of meritocracy. It's something human beings are pre-programmed to look after their kith and kin, to try and give advantage to their children. And that creates endless competition between families. And what meritocracy does is to say, for the benefit of everybody, we've got to stop doing this and we've got to create objective rules whereby people could be judged according to common standards. That's the sort of Hobbesian bargain that meritocracy does. But that can easily, easily be destroyed and you can easily push back against that. That's what really worries me about less meritocracy is that you tend not to get a bit less of it. It tends to collapse like a souffle collapses. Um, two points I really want to emphasize. One is that that uh, we have an incomplete revolution. The reason we need more meritocracy is that the meritocratic revolution is incomplete. Let me pick on um, Michael's university. It may seem a bit ungenerous, but let me do that partly because Harvard is such a global bastion, a global brand, and partly because why not? Why not? Let's go. Let's go for. Let's go for this. Harvard gives privileged access to the children of alumni. It gives privileged access to the children of faculty members. It's harder to think of two more privileged groups of people uh, on the planet. It gives privileged access to people who give money to the university. Think of Jared Kushner, the son-in-law of Donald Trump, a very mediocre academic performance at school. His father gives a great deal of money to Harvard University. And hey, presto, is in the university. So I think somewhere between 20 and 40 percent of places are un hooked, unpegged, given purely on the basis of academic merit. So we haven't seen a complete revolution. We've seen a revolution frustrated. We need more revolution, not less of it. Secondly, and I think a more subtle point, is that the revolution has been somewhat corrupted by plutocracy. There's been a marriage recently of money and merit, of meritocracy and plutocracy, people buying better education for their children in private schools or moving to golden suburbs where they get very, very good state schools and a huge investment on the, uh, on the part of the cognitive elite in particular into preserving their position. And that creates a problem, I think, of, of the solidification of a plutocratic-meritocratic elite at the top of society. But my solution to that, and I think it's a real and very, very important and pressing problem, is again, more meritocracy, not less meritocracy. Have academic selection, have a system of, uh, of, of searching through the entire population for lost Einsteins, hidden Einsteins, 
have a system of using objective tests like IQ tests to find these people so that we can have upward mobility, so we can stop this opportunity hoarding, which is such a moral obligation at the moment. There are other terrible remnants of the Ancien Regime, particularly, I think, in America, you know, buying and selling ambassadorships, the whole Trump regime, which brought the family and family members right back into the center of power, people being given jobs because they're related to the president. So, again, this supports my argument that meritocracy is a precarious thing and it can easily go, we can easily go back into reverse. We can end up in the 19th or the 18th century very, very quickly. Two more points just to reinforce my overall argument. One is economic prosperity. There is an intimate relationship between meritocracy and economic prosperity. Societies that are meritocratic are more prosperous than societies that are not meritocratic. And that benefits everybody. It benefits the poor as well as the rich. It benefits us collectively. It's not a question of desert, but a question of, of, of general, of the common good, the subtitle of, uh, of Michael's book. Public companies are more productive than private companies. Open institutions are more efficient and productive than closed institutions. Meritocratic countries are more productive than non-meritocratic countries. So Singapore, the world's sort of leader in meritocracy, is far more productive than, let's say, Sri Lanka, which 40 years ago was uh, uh, equal in wealth to Singapore. Now Singapore has pulled well ahead in terms of life expectancy and wealth, and that is because it's been relentlessly meritocratic. Also, I think, you know, if you look at um, Sweden, far richer and far more dynamic than Italy, which is a nepo- still a nepotistic society at the moment. And finally, I'd like to point to the example of China, because we're not considering this argument just in isolation from the rest of the world, just in terms of Anglo-America. We collectively in the West face a giant competitor, really for the first time for a long time, which is China, a country which could easily become the world's leader, in both in terms of hard power, in terms of soft power, and in terms of economic power. China is massively reinforcing its meritocratic credentials. It's creating a meritocratic educational system. It's using meritocracy to select and promote people in the civil service. It's encouraging competition all over the place. And I think this is not the right time for us in the West to be having less meritocracy, to be resting on our laurels and saying, well, we can just undo these meritocratic things because the country that gets to define the future will be the country that is the most meritocratic, the most rigorous in selecting and using human talent. And I hope that is a liberal society like America or like the United States or like the European Union, not a Chinese society, not China. I think that would be a terrible future for the world. Adrian, thank you so much. I'm bursting with questions. There is so much to get into. So I'm going to begin, actually, Adrian, I'm going to ask you to address the, the, the question that Michael posed quite directly. Sure. This idea that isn't meritocracy undermined by the fact that if you're gifted, you're just given talent. It's got nothing to do with opportunity. Sure, that's an absolutely fundamental question. I will now answer it or address it at least. And that is that I think there are very, very few people who are so gifted naturally by genetics that they don't have to work, that they don't have to put in a great deal of effort, you know, burning the midnight oil. And I, you know, even even the young Mozart had to practice, even the young Beethoven had to practice. So I think effort is an important part of merit. Michael Young, who wrote, wrote the book, as it were, on meritocracy, defined uh, meritocracy as IQ plus effort. And I think effort is something which gives us a sort of moral claim 
over things, that we need some sort of notion of agency for effort to make any sense. And we need some notion that we're struggling against our, uh, you know, struggling in favor of our better selves and against our, our weaker selves by trying to do things. Now, Rawls's answer to that question is that, well, your ability to work hard is also something that is genetically given. I, I'm not sure what evidence he has of that, but I think it's very hard to think of a society which doesn't give people some sort of notion that, that, that working hard is a good thing, a morally good thing that they should be rewarded for. Michael Sandel, are you underestimating the role of, of effort? Surely that plays into how much talent you have. Well, effort is admirable, but it's no answer to the challenge I put to Adrian for a couple of reasons. First, if what he really wants is selection by IQ tests, standardized tests, then it's strange that he would uh, invoke effort. Why not select students based on how hard they work? Even the, even the devoted meritocrat who invokes effort, which does seem to be our own doing, doesn't really believe that the gold medal in the Olympics should go to the athlete who works the hardest or who perspires the most. Even, and I suspect Adrian thinks the gold medal should go to the, to the fastest runner, regardless of how much he or she perspires and works and trains in relation uh, to, to the second place finisher. So effort is an evasion of the question. And, and we can see, Richula, that it's an evasion if we take one, as a small example, one of the cases that uh, Adrian raised, I agree with him, that Harvard and other universities should not give an advantage to the children of alumni. And in fact, at Harvard, uh, if you're the child of an alumnus, your chances of admission are one in three. The majority still don't make it, but one in three. If you're not the child of an alumnus, your chance of admission is about one in 25. So Adrian's right about that. It's unfair. But suppose someone defended legacy, the legacy preference with exactly the argument that Adrian just tried to make about effort. Even those who are admitted with a legacy preference work very hard. The majority of children of alumni who apply don't get in. So they work hard, too. They aren't so advantaged by the legacy preference that they, uh, they don't need to expend effort. I think Adrian would consider that a very weak defense of the fairness of legacy admissions, saying they have to work hard, too. I say that that weak argument in defense of legacy admissions is a weak argument generally. It's, a, it's an evasion with respect to the question, what is the difference? And I think, Richella, we should, in fairness, give Adrian a chance to address this question. What is the difference between the accident of birth that lands someone on top in a feudal aristocracy and the accident of birth that lands someone on top if we had a society truly governed by the fair, objective IQ tests that Adrian wants. What's the moral difference in terms of deservingness? That's the question. Sure. I mean, I think the deservingness lies not in IQ and it lies not in effort. 
It doesn't lie in pure ability and it doesn't lie in the amount that you, that you sweat. It lies in the combination of the two. It lies in the combination of innate ability, which I think is best discovered by IQ tests or other sorts of tests. And Would you agree, innate, ability, you agree innate ability by definition is not our no, no, own no, doing? It's, it's the other thing, we, we don't necessarily morally deserve our innate ability, but we do deserve our achievements. It's the combination of IQ and effort that produces achievement. So half of that is morally deserved, which is your achievement, your effort. Half of it is not morally morally deserved. So I would say it's people who reach the top of the cognitive world, you know, people like Harvard professors, and are people who are in one sense lucky, they've been born intelligent, but in another sense they're morally admirable because they have devoted their lives to achievement and to mastering extremely difficult subjects which very few people can master. So it's the combination of effort, deserved, and IQ, which is not deserved. And I also think that it's important also to think of the common good. And I think the common good is best deserved by allocating talent to opportunity. And the common good is undermined if we if we don't do that. Michael, I'll let you come back on that. But I just want to also put one more point into the mix, if I may, that Ibram X. Kendi has said that standardized tests, which is partly what we've been talking about, uh, one of the most effective racist policies ever. I mean, I, I wonder what you make of that. Well, it is certainly true that the history of IQ testing and of mental testing as a way of allocating opportunities is bound up with the history of eugenics, which is in large part a racist legacy. And so I myself very much dislike and am skeptical that there is a single quality called talent that is equivalent to cognitive ability, which in turn can be tested from a young age by an IQ test. And I think that this is, it's in the legacy of the people, you know, who used to measure the size of skulls, phrenologists, to try to determine who had the greatest brain size. IQ tests used to allocate income and wealth and opportunity and power, I think do still reflect that eugenic legacy. So I am very skeptical of them, but I could be wrong and Adrian will, will tell me why I'm wrong. But if I'm wrong about that, and if IQ tests are accurate measures of a singular talent, cognitive ability that the society needs, then all the more reason to notice that even on Adrian's theory, if there is such a thing as innate cognitive ability on the basis of which opportunity and power should be distributed, that is not the doing of the person who possesses it. And therefore, it can't be the basis of deservingness. Let, let, let me reply to there are several points there. First of all, I don't believe that there is a signal co single cognitive ability that should determine everything else and that positions should be uh, allocated purely on the basis of IQ tests. I think there are several sorts of abilities. I think there is also uh, an important distinction between innate ability on the one hand and achievement on others on the other hand. And it is this process of turning ability into achievement that confers a moral worth to people 
who might be regarded as meritocrats. On the issue of the standardized tests, I think, uh, and, and Zendi's point about standardized tests, all systems of measurement can be criticized on the grounds that they uh, privilege some groups over other groups. I think it is the case that if you took essays and performance in essays, you could say some groups perform better than other groups. If you say that it took, you, you, you know, uh, teachers' assessments, probably one of the most subjective of all, you probably find it privileges some groups over other groups. I think standardized tests are probably the least offensive when it comes to privilege, privileging groups. And which is why, you know, if you, if, if you look at this long history of meritocracy, it's always been, it's tended to be underprivileged groups, but women in the 19th, 19th early 20th centuries who, who've appealed to standardized tests, standardized examinations. They say, judge us by the same standards as the people in privileged, uh, in privileged and power, and we will, we will beat them, as has often been the case. And finally, on the eugenics point, uh, it is true that many of the advocates, early advocates of IQ testing were eugenicists. It's also true that many of the early advocates of socialism were eugenicists. Sidney Webb was a eugenicist. Many of the early advocates of contraception, Barry Stopes was a fanatical eugenicist. Were eugen eugenics was a pervasive belief in that period, you know, from the 1880s right the way to, through to the Second World War that, that contaminated intellectuals of every shape, colour and size. So I don't think that is a dispositive objection to it. But this moral point, uh, which Michael keeps coming back to, is, and I keep producing the same answer, that turning ability into achievement is a, is a moral thing which confers, confers desert on those who are willing to put in the time to do it. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
I want to open up to questions from the audience, but one last question to you, Michael, from me, which is we've talked a lot about the problems with meritocracy, but but what's the alternative? Is there a solution to this? Yes. Just if I could quickly add one other word about standardized tests and race in 1951. There was an applicant to Boston University Graduate School who scored on the standardized test below average and verbal ability. They admitted him nonetheless. His name was Martin Luther King Jr., one of the great orators in American history. On the standardized test, he was below average in verbal ability. As far as alternatives to meritocracy, first, we should recognize that we that the question is not really whether to get rid of meritocracy and to put in something else. It's to begin by recognizing that if meritocracy is, is a system that promotes upward mobility, opportunity for those from below, as Adrian said in his opening statement, it's not a matter of displacing it. We don't have one. If we look at the United States and, and the UK, in terms of, of mobility, it's very unlikely for people to rise from poor backgrounds, low-income backgrounds, bottom 20% to the top. In the United States, only about 5% manage that, to rise from the bottom 20% to the top. And uh, most people, only about a third, even make it to the middle. In the, U the UK and the US, are among the worst of the rich uh, developed countries in terms of uh, intergenerational mobility. In Denmark, it takes two generations for someone from a low-income family to reach the average income. Two generations. In the U.S. and the U.K., it takes five generations. And so I think, uh, and I'll turn to the alternatives, Richula, but it's not as, it's not as though we have a functioning meritocracy with social mobility, the most nominally meritocratic societies, the US and the UK, have less intergenerational mobility than most of the Northern European countries, and then Japan, and then Canada. So I think we should recognize that. As for the alternatives, I think there are two broad alternatives to a meritocracy that claims to reward people according to their deservingness in the exercise of their talents. One alternative would be a, a liberal free market society that dropped the moral pretense that says the winners deserve their winnings, that drops the pretense that those who land on top deserve their success and that those who struggle must deserve their fate as well. One could embrace, I don't favor this alternative, but one could perfectly well embrace the kind of liberal market society that Friedrich Hayek argued for. Hayek argues, Adrian doesn't like Rawls's argument against the moral arbitrariness of talents. Hayek, we should remember, made exactly the same argument that talents that talents are arbitrary from a moral point of view and therefore he rejected Hayek did the meritocratic idea 
that those who make the most money in a free market deserve uh, those winnings. So uh, one alternative, Richard, to answer your question, would be a liberal free market society that dropped the meritocratic assumption. And I, I would say the meritocratic hubris associated with the idea that the winners deserve their winnings. Another alternative to a, a meritocratic society would be also to reject meritocratic hubris, to reject the idea that the rich are rich because they are more deserving than the poor. And that would be, broadly speaking, a social democratic society, of which there are many versions that considered the winnings of the winners, not theirs as a matter of desert, and therefore open to various forms of redistribution and public investment to provide for the dignity of work, and for a decent life, and a greater measure of equality, greater social mobility for those who didn't do well on the standardized tests. So you can choose. I prefer the second myself, and that could be a debate for another evening. I prefer the social democratic version, but it's important to notice that the alternatives to a society where the rich are rich because they are assumed to be more deserving than the poor, a meritocratic society, could be a Hayekian liberal free market society or it could be any number of versions of a social democratic society. Well, there we go. Two solutions, alternatives. Adrian, I'm sure you'll want to come back to those, but you've kind of placed meritocracy in a, in a political context, in a, in a historical context. But somebody asks, is meritocracy truly a universal concept or is it just an anomalous feature of weird societies, Western educated, industrialized, et cetera, et cetera? Well, the answer to that question is most definitely not. If you look at the history of meritocracy, there are, there are two traditions, really, two very powerful traditions. One is the tradition you can see coming from Plato in the West, who argued that there's a distinction between men and women of gold, of silver and of bronze, and that, that we need to create a society in which philosopher kings direct society. But the other developing almost at the same time is the Confucian idea in China. And China did much more than the West much earlier on to create an examination state which selected ma a Mandarin elite by a very rigorous program of examinations, a national program of exa examinations. So at the time when the West had characters like Eric Bloodaxe running around, seizing, seizing power by his bloody axe, the Chinese were administering examination systems. So no, it's definitely not a peculiarity of the West. And as I said, the country that is doing most at the moment to advance in a meritocratic direction that is most keen on harnessing this idea for the purpose of becoming a richer and richer society is China. That's an interesting, uh, interesting answer. Michael, I wonder if you agree that China is using meritocracy and also if on, on your key point about the talented deserving or not deserving their benefits, our audience ask, don't, do you accept that some of the talented accept that, that deserve their benefits? And if they don't, then why not? Well, on China as a meritocracy, I think it's, I think it's rather a stretch to see China as a meritocracy. It's true, as Adrian says, that there is a long Confucian tradition that emphasizes not the kind of technocratic merit that tends to predominate in meritocracies today, but a meritocracy of virtue. This is the Confucian tradition, and it's a rich 
an important tradition. But to infer from that tradition that somehow China is a, a meritocracy and we had better uh, uh, well, wait, 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 so, so sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I would not, I'm not claiming that China is a meritocracy. What I'm claiming is that China is harnessing a great many meritocratic tools, promotion by merit, promotion by examinations, very rigorous selection in education in order to project its power. Um, that's not a meritocracy. It's, it's ruled by, you know, by somebody who's president for life. But it is using these meritocratic me mechanisms, which are key, in my view, and I think that the data will support that, to prosperous growth. And that's something we should take very seriously and should be very worried about. All right. But, but let's look at the role that examination system plays in China. The Gakao is the name of the university entrance exam for which children from the time they are very young are drilled and crammed and prepared. And, and China now is worried about the effects of the Gakao system, of the enormous pressures, and also the wasted time and resources that families devote through a life, for, through the adolescent years, to preparing their children for this exam. They are worried, and rightly, about the fact that the outcome of the Gakao, the Chinese entrance exam, disproportionately favors the wealthy. They are worried that only about 15% of the students admitted to Qinghua University and other top universities come from low-income or rural backgrounds. They are encountering the same worries and, and, and objections that, that we have, and one of the measures they've taken which is connected to a question, I think, uh, Richard, we should ask Adrian what he really means by more meritocracy. He's, he's emphasized more rigorous objective tests. One of the measures China has taken to try to deal with the unfair advantages built in to an examination system is they have banned the private tutoring industry, which is a $100 billion industry globally because they think it confers unfair advantages on those who can afford it. So China is struggling with the same defects of an examination-driven meritocracy as we are. But it seems to me, if Adrian really wants to double down on meritocracy, more meritocracy can't simply be to rely more on standardized tests. That's rather... If, if uh, you'll forgive me, weak tea, there are much more. If, you will, if one wants more meritocracy, the Chinese example of banning these private tutoring companies could be one, quite modest. But for that matter, one could go all the way to Plato, whom Adrian invoked, who said the only real way to, to have, uh, a perf to perfect a meritocracy is to abolish the family. To abolish the family because precisely it's families being able in unequal ways to, uh, rig the system and pass their privilege onto their kids that has made meritocracy into a kind of hereditary aristocracy. So the real, if, if Adrian wants more meritocracy, would he ban expenditure on private tutors? Would he abolish the family? And what about a 100% inheritance tax? That would be a way 
of perfecting meritocracy by saying each generation begins anew. Is Adrian in favor of a 100% inheritance tax? And finally, since Adrian emphasizes intellectual capacities in IQ, there's a further measure. What about, thanks to new technology, genetic engineering for cognitive enhancement to lift up those who have low IQs? One of the people who made this proposal uh, actually, there is a lab in China, in Shenzhen, that is trying to find the genetic basis of IQ precisely to genetically engineer IQ. But one of the, one of the people who suggested genetic engineering as a way to level the playing field and perfect the meritocracy was the son of Michael Young, Toby Young, who, unlike his father, favors meritocracy but he recognizes, he recognizes the unfairness that you can't base deservingness on IQ if it's simply a matter of the genetic lottery. Well, well, Michael, so Michael, I, Michael, you've you've made you've 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 made a huge number of points here, uh, and, and we are supposed to be listening to the opinions of the audience. But let me, because you've challenged me directly, let me reply to those things. I agree with you entirely that we have a huge problem of the inheritance of privilege and we need to do something about the inheritance of privilege. I believe that more meritocracy is a way of doing something about the inheritance of privilege. And what I mean by more meritocracy, which is a way I believe that the essence of meritocracy is to break the link between your parental privilege and, the, uh, and where children end up. I believe in having earlier selection because it's, it's by intervening as early as possible that you can provide opportunities to poorer people that are equal to the opportunities of richer people. I believe in making selection on the basis or as much as possible on objective tests. I would, almost, I would also say on the genetic point that we're beginning to gather more and more material. People like Robert Plowman are uh, identifying genome-wide polygenic scores, which can be used to find to, to find hidden Einstein's talent in underprivileged children, which I think would be important. I believe in terms of breaking the link between parental privilege and, 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 and where you end up, I would force public schools, private schools in this country, to give at least half of their places on the basis of examination rather than on the basis of whether people's parents can, can pay for them. So that's not, uh, I would never go as far as a 100% inheritance tax, but I think a redistributive welfare state with a significant inheritance tax is an absolutely vital part of, of uh, meritocracy. Uh, genetic engineering obviously is, a, is an abomination, but I think we have to be conscious. Again, I keep returning to this point of China as a competitor, that um, if China is harnessing all the tools it can of meritocracy, one of those tools it may well be harnessing in the future, or some of the tools they may well be harnessing in the future, are ones that we would regard as abominations. So I think in order to be able to compete as well as we can with those, we also use all the reasonable tools of meritocracy just to make sure that the, 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 the unreasonable tools don't become mainstreamed. I'm going to come back to some more audience questions. And uh, Adrian, picking up from what you've just been saying, someone asks, do you believe that sort of level playing field, even the one that you've described, as opposed to perhaps uh, what Michael was talking about earlier, do you believe that type of level playing field can ever work? If not, the question yes. says pure meritocracy can't work and there has to be some other system. 
Well, I, I, I wouldn't advocate pure meritocracy. I mean, I said more meritocracy is the, usually the best cure to the problems of meritocracy and more meritocracy. I don't want 100% meritocracy, 100% inheritance tax. I think, I think all ideas can be taken to a logical absurdity. But I do think they can work. And let me give one example in this country, which is the Brampton, Brampton Academy in East London, which is a, a sixth form college which is an, is an extremely poor area of East London with many children having, having subsidised school meals, with many children coming from ethnic backgrounds, working class backgrounds, which gets more children into Oxbridge every year than Eton College, which is taking people from the whole world. So if you have academically selective schools with an academically rigorous ethos, you can get those, the, the, those, those children the best possible opportunities to, in order to express their abilities. And I think what we need is to go down the Brampton Manor Academy Road rather than the road that Lowell School in San Francisco is going down or the Boston, uh, or Boston Latin School is going down, which are abolishing entrance tests and replacing entrance from, uh, with, um, from tests with lotteries, which I think will destroy those institutions of academic forcing houses and will add to this, to the power of the American plutocracy. More meritocracy, particularly more academies, more excellent grammar schools or academies or selective schools for poorer people is the way to go forward. Michael, Gary Azunwa asks a question that follows very well from that, which is, what do you think the consequences are of having either more meritocracy or leaving meritocracy as it is? What, what could be the consequences of that? I think the consequences of more meritocracy, if one takes seriously the idea of breaking the link between parental privilege and the opportunity of children, the only way really to do that is to double down on the meritocratic principle and ban private tutors, have confiscatory inheritance taxes, abolish the family, and genetically engineer for IQ. Now, Adrian describes uh, genetic engineering as abomination and uh, confiscatory inheritance taxes as absurdities, but he doesn't say why. I agree th that these are undesirable. I'm not in favor of them. But he doesn't have a principled argument to show us how he can save the idea of moral deservingness for the talented, because that's at the heart of the meritocratic principle, that the talented are moral, morally deserving. He doesn't show how we can vindicate that idea without giving everyone a truly equal start. Now, there is an alternative which is to focus less on making life a race, to focus less on arming people for meritocratic competition, and to focus more on the dignity of work, to focus more on making life better for everyone, whether they are well-credentialed, whether they are, do well on IQ tests or not. And that's the political agenda that I would favor. But if one rejects the idea of regarding the distribution of talents and gifts as a kind of common asset. And if one insists that the rich are rich because they are more deserving than the poor or would be if we could level the playing field, then one has to, in, to be consistent, take all of these radical meritocratic measures 
to make the playing field level enough to vindicate the principle of moral deservingness. I reject that whole project, so I don't favor these uh, uh, extreme measures. But I think that means rethinking the role of colleges and universities as arbiters of opportunity. I think it means, well, uh, asking how we can make life more dignified for the people we've been calling key workers during the pandemic, most of whom don't have the meritocratic credentials uh, and the high, high test scores. I, I, do, I, did, I, I do think, Michael, it's slightly crazy to argue that unless you can make things perfectly fair, unless you can make the, le- the playing field perfectly level, then the whole project of equality of opportunity is an absurdity. First of all, to reassert my point, I think we have a combination of IQ and effort here. IQ, genetic ability, is not deserved, but achievement, such as your achievement, is deserved because it involves hard work, application, and making very difficult bets. I think meritocracy is a wonderful thing, but it needs, of course, like all good principles, to be balanced against other good principles, and it needs to be balanced against principles such as privacy, such as such as the such as family, such as community, as you're saying, I don't think the world ought to be a pure calculating machine for putting people into positions on the basis of their IQ. But that should be part of what we're trying to do. We have so many more questions, but we're virtually out of time. So what I'm going to allow you both to do is to sum up your thoughts. You've got a maximum of two minutes each. And Adrian, I'm going to let you go first. Well, I think that, that that meritocracy is a revolutionary idea and has always been a revolutionary idea. It's something that's come from the bottom of society and has been embraced by people who want to be given a chance, like the people at the top of society. It's a protean idea, a self-correcting idea. On the question of desserts, I think we partly deserve our abilities. But I don't think meritocracy is just a way of giving wealth or, uh, or privilege to the, to, to, to the people at the top. It's a way of allocating talent throughout society, everywhere in society. And the result of that proper allocation is a wealthier society and the common benefit of everybody. So, and the other thing, really, I think the problem with less meritocracy is you can very easily slip back into uh, the world that we've seen most terribly demonstrated by Donald Trump and his, and his family. Meritocracy is a precious thing, hard to create, easy to destroy. Thank you very much. Michael Sandel, if I could have your final thoughts. We shouldn't confuse meritocracy with the principle of equality of opportunity. Equality of opportunity is a good and important principle. No one should be held back due to prejudice or, uh, or uh, coming from a poor family. But equality of opportunity is a remedial principle. It's not an adequate principle for a just society or for a good society. Meritocracy is, though, is something else. It's the idea that if chances are equal, the winners deserve their winnings. And it's that idea of deservingness based on talents that needs to be defended. And I don't think we've heard a convincing defense of it. But I think we need also a kind of moral turning because the, the moral case for meritocracy is really the heart of the issue. Insisting that my success is something I deserve, is my doing, makes it hard to see myself in other people's shoes. Appreciating the role of luck in life, though, can prompt a certain humility. There, but for the accident of birth, or the grace of God, or the mystery of fate, go I. This spirit of humility is the civic virtue we need now. It's the beginning of the way back. 
from the harsh ethic of success that drives us apart. It points beyond the tyranny of merit toward a less rancorous and perhaps more generous public life. Michael, thank you very much. So now you've heard the arguments, is this about enshrining a system of opportunity, a, a universal system, or is it actually just preserving this idea of deservingness? It's time to make your final vote on whether we need more meritocracy or less. A poll will appear for you to make that vote. If you still haven't made up your mind, you can say you're undecided. And just to remind you, when we voted at the beginning, 46% of you thought we needed more meritocracy, 23% thought you needed less meritocracy, and 31% of you were undecided. So uh, have a little think. I'm sure you, there's so much there to chew on. Whilst we're waiting for that, Adrian, I do want to pick up on one thing that came up in the questions that, that was uh, referred to earlier. Do you think that modern meritocracy has played a role in the decline of mental health and, and life satisfaction because it creates this sense of a race? Well, I think if you go back to the world before meritocracy, the, the, it was a world of incredible frustration of people who didn't have opportunities and ability. What meritocracy does in an ideal form is to give people the ability, the opportunity to express their talent. So if you go to pre-meritocratic society, it was a society of mute, inglorious Miltons. It was, you know, think of Jude the Obscure. And what you, you know, if you look at the history of the British working class, British working class education, it's a history of incredible frustration of people feeling that their abilities were not expressed, not discovered and not recognised. So, yes, we have a competitive society which puts a lot of pressure on people. But the pressure of doing a lot of homework, I think, is, 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 is not as, as, as demoralising as the pressure of having your abilities unrecognised because you didn't have any opportunity. And one more for you, Michael. Do you think there is a system you proposed uh, two alternatives, a liberal free market society or a more social democratic model? Do you think there is a system that treats people with respect for di diversity and inclusion? Well, I think that the, uh, of the systems we've been discussing, the, the one that holds out the greatest hope for treating people with respect is a version of social democracy that is concerned not only with distributive justice, which is very important, but also with contributive justice, making sure that everyone, whatever their job, whatever their social role, is respected and accorded dignity and esteem for the contributions they make. I think that's one of the things we've learned during the pandemic. Those of us with the luxury of working from home during the pandemic came to recognize how deeply we depend on workers we often overlook. Delivery workers, warehouse workers, grocery store clerks, care workers. These are not at the top of the meritocratic heap. They are not the best credentialed, best paid, most honored members of our society. But now we were calling them key workers, essential workers. And this could be the glimmer and intimation of a society that that uh, shares more broadly a sense uh, that we are all in this together and that reflects that sensibility in the way we allocate income and wealth, but also recognition and esteem. This has been such an interesting conversation. I wish we could keep it going. Uh, there's so much more I'd like to ask you. I've got the result of the final vote. So just a reminder, at the beginning, 46% of you thought we should have more meritocracy. 23% thought we should have less meritocracy. And 31% were undecided. Now, in the final vote... 
42% of you want more meritocracy, 42% of you want less meritocracy, and just 16% are undecided. Uh, it's, I love these votes. I know they're not scientific and we can't read too much into them, but it's great to hear people responding to the debate and responding to some great ideas that have been put about there by Adrian Waldridge and Michael Sandel. Thank you very much to both of our panellists uh, and thank you to all of you listening at home for all those great questions. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.